He was born September 17th, 1923 in Mount Olive, Alabama, Hiram King Hank Williams, and he would become a youth sensation long before there was YouTube or American Idol, The Voice, or any other means of viral dissemination. At age four, he was already standing on the piano bench in the little Baptist church where his mother, Lily, played the piano. He earned his first guitar at age seven, a $2.50 prize from his mother because of his good grades. At 14, he played and sang an original song, the WPA Blues, at the Montgomery Empire Theater Talent Contest and won. And that was that. He quit school and hit the road. Playing all over L.A. Lower Alabama, that is. <laughs> Andalusia, Op, Fountain, Greenville, all those major metropolitan centers. And he even slid south into the Florida panhandle. Pensacola, where he would hole up in a hotel and write some of his more memorable songs. Milton, and our very own Defuniac Springs and Point Washington. He played with a man named Pappy McCormick from here in Walton County. Pappy had a band called the Hawaiian Troubadours that played island and country western and barn dancing music, and Hank pointed out in a radio interview once that no one in the band was Hawaiian, but Pappy was of Creek and Muscogee heritage, and some places wouldn't hire him to play if they found out he was an Indian. So he claimed to be Hawaiian instead, which was so exotic. And Hank played multiple times with Pappy and others on the porches of the Wesley House at Point Washington and at the Anderson House on Live Oak Avenue in Defuniac Springs. It was about this time of year, as January was born in 1947, that Hank Williams was on his way home to Montgomery from playing a dance at Fort Deposit, Alabama. He was inebriated, as was his custom, asleep in the back seat. His mother was driving. The car was pointed north, and she came over a little hill there in lower Alabama and saw the landing lights of the local Montgomery airport pan the night sky, and she knew she was close to home. Hank, Hank, she called out to the back seat. Wake up. I just saw the light. From his stupor, he seemed to sober up immediately, as he recalled. And within a couple of weeks, he had written the first draft of I Saw the Light, put to the tune of an old Scottish folk song. Initially, it was a flop, but it would go on to become Hank Williams Sr.'s most popular song and has been covered by everyone from Ernest Tubb to Jerry Lee Lewis. In 2016, when the movie about Hank's life was released starring Tom Hiddleston, I Saw the Light was the title of that film. It's a deeply religious song, which should come as no surprise. Hank Williams was a Wretched man at times, to be sure. His physical and emotional pain from a twisted back and the abandonment of his father had him drinking heavy by the time he was 10 years old. If he were living today, he would be one of those sad, tragic Hollywood youth with unending success and talent, but torn apart by depression and addiction, his own demons and self-destruction. With all that angst and suffering, Though it is not unusual at all to find spirituality, religion, and a seeking heart fused with that broken heart. It's very common. For the tortured artist today, it might be Kabbalah or meditation or Buddhism. 
For Hank Williams, it was the Baptist church. He was still standing right to the very end on that little piano bench with his mother. And this song sounds like he's at a revival meeting. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Just like a blind man, I wandered along. Worries and fears I claimed for my own. I was a fool to wander and stray. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Now I have traded the wrong for the right. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. It's got everything any Baptist boy would ever need. (laughs) Stories from the Gospels, the words of Jesus, remorse over one's failures, being lost, a conversion experience like the Apostle Paul. It's absolutely perfect. And that's probably why the song has had such sticking power over the years. It's flawlessly universal. It can be sung when your heart is light and your steps are sure, fresh out of the baptismal waters. Or you can be strung out, down and out, washed out, and sing it as a prayer for better days. It works in a church sanctuary, sung as a praise song, but it also works at the rehab center, at a homeless shelter. I Saw the Light is an all-inclusive, all-embracing confession of faith and a prayer for help. It is the very description of the life of faith. Think about it. In the Bible, all the references to light as a symbol of awakening, of conversion, of creation, something new happening. And God said, let there be light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. God is light, and in God there is no darkness. Walk in the light as He is in the light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. I can keep going. Because it's a metaphor that's used everywhere. And here it is in our text today. It's not daylight. It's not sunlight. It is starlight. Wise men come from the east. Magi, they are sometimes called. They have been on this long, persistent journey. Field, fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. To seek for a king was their intent and to follow that star wherever it went. To today's text, the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. My mother was never a fan of Christmas. I don't know why. That's a therapy session for another time. (laughs) She decorated late and took down decorations early. I was just telling Cindy this week that one year we were in the midst of that wonderful late Christmas morning slump. You know what I mean? All the gifts have been opened and it's just sort of this, you know, dreamy, sleepy, desperately tired euphoria. And we're all kind of just laying around the living room, you know, playing with toys or reading the manual to something that you got. 
And my mother comes into the room with this huge cardboard box that just hours earlier it had presents in it and just starts taking the decorations off the tree. It's not even lunchtime yet. On to Easter, I guess. We had Christmas, it's over. No, 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 it's not over. Christmas begins, Christmas Day begins the 12 days of Christmas. If your decorations are still up, it's okay. They can stay up for a while. It ends with epiphany, which means the appearance. It is the appearance of the wise men seeking the light of the world that we have read about today. But speaking of them today, I'm still pushing them out there a little early, by a few days. And that's consistent with what we usually do. We push them onto the Christmas story early. Look at a nativity scene that you may see anywhere. Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus. There are shepherds, sheep, a cow or two, angels hovering. That's all good. And then there are the three wise men. We three kings from Orient are, and they're camels too, and it's all wrong. They weren't kings. They were astrologers, minoring in astronomy. They weren't from the Orient, but from Persia. We don't know if there were three. There could have been 30. There's no mention of any camels. They didn't follow yonder star either. They saw it as it rose in the east and then turned west and went to Palestine, where it reappeared to them. And they don't belong at the nativity at all. They show up not 12 days later, but most likely up to two years later. So we don't know as much about these guys as maybe we thought we did. But what we know is enough. They come seeking the newborn king of the Jews. They are seeking truth. Seeking God. What they couldn't even name, maybe. But they had seen the light and intended on searching it out wherever it would lead them. And it was a common belief in that period that signs in the heaven that could not be explained could be an announcement from God of some extraordinary birth somewhere. And there was an expectation at the time, at least in the Roman Empire, that a great leader would soon be born to replace Caesar Augustus. Augustus had been sick for decades, and he had named his grandsons as his heirs, but then they both died within two years of one another at roughly the exact same time period that Jesus was born. And the whole world was left to wonder what is going to happen now. There was this great anticipation in the air. Now, why the Magi decided to journey to Jerusalem, it's impossible to say, but this was not completely unheard of or unexpected. Persian Magi were attuned to such things and made journeys like this from time to time, if for no other reason but to satisfy their insatiable curiosity. The extraordinary thing about these Magi is that they came to worship Jesus the Jewish Messiah. Now, let's put this in a contemporary geopolitical context. Imagine today that a child was born here. That is Ariel, a Jewish settlement in the West Bank. Imagine today that a child is born to a Jewish mother, a teenager, there, an enclave of Judaism, Surrounded by Palestinian Arabs and Russian immigrants. It is tense. It is dangerous. 
It is a cauldron of unrest. The baby's father, let's call him Joey, works at a kosher food plant like most of the other young... No, I'm serious. The main employer in this town is a kosher food plant in the West Bank that ships the food back into Jerusalem. And so imagine that he works there. And he has this little family who lives in a small efficiency apartment walking distance to the city bus station. Well, one day, not long after Joe sat down to eat his dinner with his wife, their toddler strapped into a high chair who is now throwing his food across the tiny kitchen. There's a commotion heard in the street, which is not unusual in Ariel. Not unusual at all. So Joe gets up to check the multiple locks on the door. He peeps out through the blinds, and he is alarmed by what he sees. In the street in front of his house, filling filling that narrow little avenue, is a caravan of slick black Range Rovers. Spilling from their doors is an entourage of sharply dressed Persians. Well, let's get this right. Iranians. In a Jewish community in the West Bank. They wear fine, bright, dervish hats and dark tailored suits. They are scrambling about with handcuffed briefcases attached to their wrists, straightening their ties as their bodyguards form a secure perimeter. Carefully, nervously, they come to the door. As Joey slowly opens the door, a steel piece of leftover fence in his hand, with Mary and the child hovering behind him, looking over his shoulder, the Iranian on their faces to worship the toddler. And they spill their briefcases open with some of the most expensive gifts money could buy. Gifts fit for a king. Now, what if something like that happened today? It might cause World War III. Iranians and Jews together? Sons of the Islamic Revolution kneeling before a Jewish toddler? Raining the precious gifts of Iran down on a poor Israeli family? Who wrote this story? It's all wrong. This wouldn't happen. It's impossible for something like this to happen. But it is exactly what happened. These men didn't know anything about the Jewish Messiah. They weren't keepers of God's law. They were pseudo-astronomers, more fortune tellers than scientists, who probably were doing palm readings and writing horoscopes for the Tehran Times. They didn't study the Bible. They followed stars. They listened to their dreams. And they would go off running, chasing dubious information. Not many people would launch a dangerous journey across the Middle East based solely on a hunch. Not many people would put their life on hold to prove their mystical intuitions about life. And certainly not many Iranians would worship at the feet of a Jew. Not then and not now. Yet these men are some of the first that we find in the line to worship at the feet of Christ. Now certainly truth can show up in the most unexpected places and in the most unexpected ways. But even more certain is this, those who come seeking the truth, those who have a searcher's heart, who come to worship, can come as equally unexpected. And that is the big lesson of Epiphany. This Jesus is for everybody. Everyone 
is welcomed into the presence of Christ. You never know what sinner or saint, which is all of us in varying degrees, will cry out, I saw the light, and start walking the path. Learn from these magi. It is the most precious gift that they bring. Many of those who genuinely seek after Christ are from unexpected places. They look, sound, talk, and act in unexpected ways. Because not everyone who desires a relationship with God can be found inside our particular church or any church at all. Not everyone who is a seeker will show up at our scheduled time of worship. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than that. God is more gracious than that. And Jesus is far more welcoming than that. He isn't threatened by visitors from strange, faraway places. They travel along twisted roads and tangled curves, theologically, philosophically, and literally, crossing more in mountain field and fountain. But when they arrive, He welcomes them as the seekers that they are. That is the thing about faith. The light is going to shine where the light is going to shine. And we have no more control over that than the rising or the setting of the sun. But we can foster the flame. We can be conduits of the light and meet seekers where they are, welcoming them with open hearts and open doors and open arms. Their search may have begun on the other side of the world. It might have taken them places that your journey will never take you. And it may lead them in directions that you will never go. But if they have seen the light, and they're walking in the light, let's help them on that way, not obstruct them. To that end, and the end of this is the story. Late one night, a blind man was about to head home after visiting a friend. And he asked the friend, may I borrow a flashlight as I walk home? And his friend did exactly that. He laughed out loud. And he said, why do you need a flashlight? You're blind. And the blind man said, well, it's not for me. It's for others. It'll keep some other traveler from running over me in the dark. Ah. So he gave him a flashlight and off he went. Well, sure enough, he hadn't gone too far when smack, he is struck by a man riding a bicycle. The cyclist quickly helps the blind man to his feet who is angry and he accuses the cyclist, and he says this to him, Watch where you are going. Why can't you see the light? Shaking the flashlight at him. And the cyclist answered, Well, I don't know. Why don't you change the batteries in your flashlight? <laughs> As those who profess to walk in the light, let us remain in the light and help, not hinder those who are attempting to do the very same, even though they may travel differently than we do. It's a simple prayer written by Frederick Beekner for his brother. His brother was dying of cancer. This prayer seems appropriate because his brother was not a churchgoer, not a religious person, even though Frederick was. He didn't want a funeral at the end of his life, just a gathering of his friends for a few drinks and a great meal, which to me sounds like a great funeral. And he asked Frederick, if he would, who was a writer, one of the greatest writers 
spiritual writers of this generation. He asked his brother for a prayer, and Frederick obliged, and these couple of lines were found at his brother's bedside when he passed. Dear Lord, bring me through darkness into light. Bring me through pain into peace. Bring me through death into life. Be with me wherever I go and with everyone that I love. In Christ's name, amen.